Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So we're going to wrap up reading Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 31. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the sovereign word of the Lord. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 3 in our walk through the Gospel of Mark titled Following Jesus, we can see that there are a number of themes that are emerging from the text. For instance, one of the themes that we see over and over again is Mark makes a point to demonstrate who Jesus really is. Mark opens up his gospel by declaring that Jesus is the the Son of God and that he deliberately records the historical events that prove that. Like Jesus' baptism and the things that happened there, you know, demonstrating the Trinity. And the conflict that that Jesus got into with the devil uh, as he used the word of God to defeat him as he spent 40 days in the wilderness. Or how about the miracles and the casting out demons and healings and, and the things that Jesus says about himself. Right, Mark makes a point in this text to continually demonstrate and point out who Jesus is. It's a recurring theme. And what we've seen so far then in this text is that a person can actually just take the book of Mark and successfully defend the divinity of Christ just from this book alone because it's so plain in the text. Another theme that, that we see over and over again is that people are just really slow to recognize and acknowledge who Jesus is. Even though he works incredible miracles and he demonstrates his power, right? people are slow on the uptake. Right? It, 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 I think we've all kind of experienced that. But on the other hand, over and over again, the demons that Jesus encounters, his enemies, are quick to acknowledge who he is, that he is the Holy Son of God. They would say it over and over again, but Jesus shuts them up. We see this is, this is a recurring theme over and over again in the text. And another theme that we have seen multiple times in the text is where Jesus says something that completely shocks his audience. If you remember the story of the paralytic man, how they came to Jesus carrying their friend on a bed. These men did. But they get to, their, to the building where, where Jesus is at Peter's house, and they can't get in the door because there's so many people inside. But they know that Jesus can heal him, so what they do is they climb up on the roof of Peter's house, and they tear the roof off so they can lower this paralytic man down to Jesus. And when that happens, Jesus sees their faith, and he has compassion on this man. But he doesn't say what they would expect for him to say. He says that this paralytic man, he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And that shocks everyone in the room, including the man who needed to be healed. Because they were not expecting him to say that. This was not at all even on the radar of what they would expect for him to say. They were expecting him to say, son, you are healed. Or son, your faith has made you well. Or they expected for him to touch him and not say anything at all. But they were not expecting that Jesus would say, son, your sins are forgiven. Because who 
but God Himself can forgive sins. But Jesus uses this moment to get everyone's attention so that He can make an important point about who He is. God in the flesh. And, and that He can do what He's come to do, what He said He would do, which is to save people from their sins. And He does this over and over and over again. Like when the Pharisees confront Jesus about His disciples picking grain on the Sabbath so they can have a little snack. Because you remember, this is the first century, there's not a 7-Eleven on every corner. They couldn't just stop by the store and pick up you know, a little bag of peanuts or something. They were hungry. Right? And they think that these men are doing something against the law, that they're working on the Sabbath, but Jesus doesn't respond to them the way they expect him to. They would expect for him to have a dialogue about, about the law and their understanding of the law, but instead what he does, he says that the Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. He takes their entire understanding of the whole Sabbath law and turns it upside down, and if that wasn't shocking enough, then he says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He claimed direct responsibility and authority over the Sabbath, that the Sabbath belonged to him, that he had authority to say how the Sabbath was to be kept. It shocked them. And throughout this book of Mark, Jesus says things that no one expects, and he, and he says things that absolutely shocks everyone around them. And he does this throughout the Gospels as well, like the, the Gospel of John, where the Pharisees bring forward a woman caught in adultery in an effort to trap him, they they say to him, right? In um, they, they say to him, you know, now the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now they would expect him to have said one or two things, either to kill her and stone her, or to let her go. And either one of those answers, by the way, would have trapped Jesus. That's, what they, that's, why they brought, that's why they set this up. Because if he stones her, then he's not a friend of sinners, as he claims to be, and as he demonstrates that he is. But if he says, then let her go, then he has no regard for the law that he himself is responsible for, which means he cannot be the Messiah. That would be discredited in him. But instead, he says something completely unexpected, something um, shocking, something they would have never even thought he would ever do. He says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And if you understand this story, you realize that there's no answer for that whatsoever. They had no answer for this whatsoever. They didn't have any regard for this, for what he had to say. All they could do was take their stones and drop them on the ground and walk away what jesus was saying was was shocking and he does this so often all right he does it so often in the narrative and throughout the gospels that when we read a text like today we might tend to just look past what jesus is saying and forget how sometimes his 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 words are so shocking how shocking these words were to the people that were around them because in the text, Jesus says what he says here about family is shocking. It might not appear that way, but it is. Now, when we look at this text, I, I think we all understand that the main idea of these few verses at the end of chapter 3 are pretty straightforward, that those who believe in Christ are part of God's family. I think that's a pretty clear understanding and application of the text. I, I think we get that. I think it's right there, you know, 
on the surface for us to grab hold of. You don't have to do a lot of exegesis to, to understand that. But, but what I want you to notice is that Jesus doesn't simply say that those who believe in him are part of God's family. Now, he could have said that, but he doesn't say it that way. Instead, he uses the circumstances that he's in in the moment as a shocking illustration of an important spiritual theological truth about God's family. And what we need to realize is that, that for, you know, for, for context's sake, is that what Jesus says about family here would be, would be shocking in really any culture, except maybe our own. But as Kent Hughes points out, that, that, you know, in his commentary, that, that in a Hebrew culture where family was sacred, what, what Jesus says here would have been earth-shattering. What he says here in this moment would have, would have had everybody's undivided attention. And, and I, it, it's like, like, like that scene in a movie where something shocking happens and something, you know, someone says something shocking, right? And, it, it, and all of a sudden everybody gasps, right? And then it's complete silence as everybody looks at the person who said something. It's like that here. What Jesus said was so shocking to his audience. And it was, so, it was shocking for cultural reasons. But it was also shocking because of the profound truths that are being communicated by Jesus about the nature of faith in this text. And so today I want to take a closer look at what Jesus is saying here and, and why it's so shocking and then ultimately what it means for us as Christians. And what I need you to keep in mind here is this text is, is really, if you remember, is the conclusion of a story that began several verses before. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus' family in Nazareth, we talked about them, they get word of what's happening with Jesus in the area of Galilee, and they're concerned about him. In fact, it begins um, in verse 20, Mark writes, Then he, Jesus, went home, which is home to his place in Capernaum, and the crowd gathered again, and again, which is a common occurrence. And they gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, literally arrest him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. His family thought he was nuts. You see, they probably had heard about the crowds following Jesus around. And they probably heard about some of the things that he was saying, some of the shocking things that he was saying. And they probably heard about the fact that his life was in danger because the Pharisees had made up their mind they wanted to kill him. And about the crowds being so large and so out of control that they nearly overrun him and crush him. And, 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 and they probably heard about the fact that Jesus is now so busy in his ministry that he's not even taking the time to eat. And so his family believes that he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. And, 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 and the reason for that, as we talked about, the reason why they would think that is that they knew, even though they knew Jesus as a man, they did not know who Jesus really was. And so they decided they needed to go basically rescue Jesus from himself. Or in modern terms, they needed to do an intervention. And so they left their home with the intentions of finding Jesus and taking him by force and bringing him home so they could take care of him because he was nuts, as they thought. And so they... They begin to head out and understand the, the distance between Nazareth and Capernaum is a little over 20 miles, and the only way to get there was to walk and make that trip on foot. And to keep this in perspective, this would be like you and I walking from here to California City. Now, I don't, any, I don't know anybody who would like to do that, 
I know I wouldn't. But if you were to attempt that, it would be take you somewhere between seven and nine hours, depending on how fast you walk, and if you and it, and, and it would take that long if you didn't stop. Right? It's a long, hard day's walking. And what you also need to remember is that we're talking about a family. And, and so there are people of different ages with different physical abilities. Some are slower, some are faster. So they're going to move at the, the pace at the slowest person. And walking together, right, they're going to have to carry around with them the provisions that they would need, like food and water and supplies, because no one's going to know. They don't know if they're going to get to Capernaum and, and if there's going to even be food available for them. Right, so they have to take what they need with them as they walk. And so this is going to be a slow process, which is going to take them some time. And so they hear about it. They want to go and help Jesus, so they think, and they make their way. And while they're doing that, then Jesus, right, he's still in Capernaum, and he's still ministering to people. He's still, you know, dealing with people and their crowds. In fact, Jesus casts out a demon from a man who is, who is blind and, and mute, as we looked at last week. And he heals him completely. And, and this healing and this, this casting out of demons then puts him in conflicts with a, an official delegation of Pharisees who have come from Jerusalem to investigate him. Now, they're not really there to investigate you know, the validity of what he's doing. They've decided that Jesus must be done away with. Instead, what they're doing is they're trying to find a way to, to accuse him. And so instead of rejoicing for this man's healing and his freedom from demons, they're looking right, for an excuse to kill him. And, 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 and so they accuse him then of, of doing his miracles by the power of Satan. They can't deny his power, so they have to ascribe it to Satan, to which Jesus destroys their arguments using a couple of parables. And then he turns and he warns them about how dangerous it is to call right, wrong, and to reject the work that God is doing through Christ by the Holy Spirit. And after that, then Jesus' family arrives in Capernaum so that they can take hold of him and drag him off and take him home. Now, I want you to understand then, now, with that, where we are here in the story. Jesus is thought to be crazy by his family because of the things that he says and he does. They've come to take him home. And then he's thought to be demon-possessed by the religious leaders because of, of his power, because they can't deny the power, so they, they say he's demon-possessed, and so they seek to kill him. But what you also need to understand is there are other people there, people who believe in him because of what he has said and what he has done and by the power that he has demonstrated. And those people follow him. This is an important context. And, and in a moment, we're going to talk about how, how Jesus will talk about who his, who his real family is, right? And, and as we look at this text together, I want you to realize there's a passage of Scripture from John chapter 1 that I think that we would, we would do well to keep in mind because it really encapsulates what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, um, real quick in your Bible, just turn with me to John chapter 1. You can just keep your place right there in Matthew 3. But just take your Bibles out and, and, and turn with me to, to John chapter 1. And beginning in verse 10, it reads, He was in the world. Jesus was in the world. And the world was made through him. So we, we know, right, that Jesus is God, that he is the creator. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The Pharisees didn't know him, and his family didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people, his countrymen and his family, his own people did not receive him. They didn't believe in him. 
But, look at verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This text from John right here really encapsulates what Jesus is communicating here in the last part of Mark chapter 3. Jesus came to his own and they rejected him, but to those who did receive him, to those who did believe in him, he calls them his family. So turn with me back to Mark chapter 3, and in verse 31 it reads this way. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now there are a couple of things that we need to really pay attention to in, in this particular text. First of all, I want you to notice the setting here. This is a very familiar scene. If you've been paying attention to the last few weeks, this is a familiar scene because we've seen this before. Jesus is in a crowded home, right? And, and, and the, the home is so full that nobody can get in. And according to Matthew's gospel, he has just healed a blind, mute, demon-possessed man and just confronted the Pharisees about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and now he's preaching. In fact, he's preaching about how, how you know how a tree is known by its fruit. You know, right? A good tree is known by a good fruit. Bad trees are known by bad fruit. And then in this conversation, the Pharisees ask him to give another sign because he hasn't done enough for them for some reason, and he says the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, which he's referring to as death, burial, and resurrection. And then, and then his family arrives at Capernaum as he's continued to preach, and, and the house is so full that nobody can get in. Right? And, this, and, and again, this is a common occurrence in, in, in this point of Jesus' ministry, that, that Jesus is in a building that's so full, preaching and healing, and the house is so crowded, uh, there is no way in. And that's what we see here. This house is so crowded that his family cannot get near him. Now, one of the details that we need to talk about here is that this house is not just crowded with some random people. This isn't just a random crowd that's following him around. I mean, there are some random people there, but Jesus is also surrounded at this point by his followers. His 12 apostles are there with him, and so are his other disciples who, who, who believe in him. Those are the ones that Jesus will actually refer to as his family in a moment. And so this, this scene is set, right? and, it, and it sets up a, a, an important visual and spiritual contrast. Because notice where his family is. I want you to pay attention to this detail. Notice where his family is. Those who do not believe in him. They are on the outside. And notice where his followers are. They are on the inside. And what you need to know is this is not an accidental detail in the text. Mark writes it in a way like this on purpose. Because Matthew actually, he leaves this detail out. He doesn't, this, it wasn't Matthew's purpose to communicate this detail, so he doesn't talk about the crowd, and he doesn't talk about, about being inside or outside. This detail here is on purpose, because Mark, by the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making a point. And the point is, Jesus' physical family who do not believe in him are on the outside. But Jesus' followers, his spiritual family, who do believe in him, are on the inside. You see, those who reject who Jesus really is are on the outside. But those who believe and accept who Jesus is are on the inside. 
And this right here is a miniature picture of the world. Because there are two types of people, essentially, in the world. Those who reject Christ and those who accept him. That's it. You have unbelievers and you have believers. You have people who are outside of God's family and you have people who are inside of God's family. That's the picture of what you see here in the text. And not to make too much of this, okay, but, but this is the central truth. This is a central truth of Christianity. You were either unsaved or you were saved. You were either at an Adam still or you have been put into Christ. You were either spiritually dead or you're either born again. There is no in-between. There is no middle ground. You were either outside of the faith or you were in the inside of the faith. And at this time in history, Jesus' mother and brothers were both physically and spiritually on the outside. And so, there they were, in this moment, not able to get in. And so they, they pass along a message from one person to the next that Jesus' mom and, and, and brothers are outside. And, and in verse 33, he, he answers and he says, who are my mother and brothers? Which would have like absolutely been a shocking statement by itself. Because of the nature of family. And then it says, And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I cannot overemphasize, again, how shocking this statement was. It might not be to us, but I'm telling you to them it was. Because in that culture, family was venerated, especially your mama. And to deny your family would have been akin to blasphemy. The entire Jewish nation and culture was founded on families and family identities. I mean, think about it. They are all the children of Abraham. They are all the children of, of Isaac and, and Jacob. In fact, that's why there's so much about genealogy in the Bible. That's why Jesus' genealogy is recorded in the New Testament. Because in that culture, who Jesus is, is rooted in his family. I mean, these are important facts of life. Jesus is the son of David. He is descended from King David. If he's not, he's not who he claims to be. He is also from the tribe of Judah. Again, if he's not, then he's not who he claims to be. He must be. These family identities are important. Who Jesus is, is inseparably connected to his family. And so this is a shocking statement to those in the room. And it would have had everybody's attention because everybody's identity was rooted in their family. Now I want you to realize Jesus is not actually disparaging his family here. In fact, Jesus, if you understand the Bible, he has a very high regard for family because as God, Jesus being the creator of all things, he's the one who invented family. And as God and the creator of all things, he's also the author of the law that says that you're to respect and to love and to take care of your family. You know, the words honor your mother and father were authored by Christ, who is the word of God. And even more than that, Jesus will confront the Pharisees later on who, who hoard their money to, because they use a legal technicality so they can keep their money and not have to take care of their aging parents. And so Jesus, does not, he's not disrespecting his family and saying that physical family are not important. And, and I want you to understand, this is not saying that your physical family is not important even if they're unbelievers. It's not what he's saying. But rather what he's doing here is he's, he's using this current situation 
to illustrate an important point that Jesus not only has a physical family on earth, but he also has a spiritual family, a family of God. And that spiritual family, the family of God, those people were in that room with him that night. They weren't on the outside, they were on the inside. That's what Jesus is talking about. In fact, in, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually makes a point to, you know, he actually points at his disciples. It says that he, he basically held out his hand, right? He points at his disciples and says, these are my mothers and brother. Jesus is talking about his spiritual family, which means at this point in time, this point in history, even Jesus' own mom at this point was not part of his spiritual family. She was not part of the family of God. Let me say that again. At this point in history, Jesus' mom was not part of the spiritual family. And this might surprise some of you. It might even offend some of you. Because, because there's something in many people's traditions that just assumes that just because that, that Mary somehow fully, she understood from the beginning who Jesus was. I mean, the angel came to her, right? And said that she was going to have a baby without her, while she's a virgin. She was the one who had the angel explain to her that, that Jesus was going to, to um, save people from, from their sins, that he was going to have his, his father's throne and it would never end. She heard, you know, what Simon, Simeon and, and Anna said about him, at, at, you know, in the temple, right? She witnessed the shepherds coming to visit and, and their story about the angels coming to them to talk about peace on earth. And she witnessed the Magi coming and bowing down and worshiping her son. She was there for all the amazing stuff that we, we talk about on Christmas to point to who Jesus is. So how could it be possible that she's not part of God's spiritual family at that moment? Well, it's because she didn't know who he really was. She didn't believe in him at that point yet. The song, Mary, did you know? She didn't know. Well, you might say, well, how do you know that? It's right here in the text. She is here in this moment with the brothers. She is there because with, with, her, with, with, with his brothers wanting to take him home because, because they think that he is crazy. She is there because she thinks he's crazy. You understand that? If she didn't think he was crazy, she wouldn't be there. If she didn't think he was crazy, she'd have told the brothers to say, leave him alone. He ain't crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. But she's there with the brothers to take him home because, because she thinks he's crazy. And if, and if she thinks he's crazy, then she really doesn't know who he is. You understand that? She doesn't really believe in him in this moment. Which, by the way, destroys the supernatural view of Mary that the Roman Catholic Church holds. They believe that Mary was born without original sin and is perpetually a virgin forever and ever and ever, which means she has a supernatural status of her own. That's why they venerate her and pray to her. But in this moment, Mary doesn't even know who Jesus is. The mother of God doesn't even know that her son is God. Not to mention that here very clearly in the text, James says that Jesus has brothers. It says that, that his mothers and brothers were there. Now there'll be some that make the argument that the word Greek, the word in Greek, Adelphos, 
could mean brother, but it also could mean cousin or close relation. And, and, and that's true. That is absolutely right. It could mean that in that original language. But understand, it's never used that way in the text. It's never used that way in the text. It's never used that way in the text. It's never translated that way into English. In anywhere in the New Testament, it's not, it doesn't happen. The word that uses, is used for cousin or relative in the Greek ultimately would be the word genes, not Adelphos. This isn't Jesus' cousins here, right? And so what, what, what Mark is clearly referring to is that Jesus has biological brothers, which means that Mary is not a perpetual virgin, which means she is not to be venerated as mediatrix. Because after Jesus was born, right, she had other children. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew makes the point pretty clear. In the, in the Christian Standard Version, it tells us that Joseph did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. It's worded that way because the implication is very clear, right? That, which means that Jesus, when he was born, Mary and Joseph were a normal married couple, and they did what normal married couples do. And as a result, they had more kids. Which means Mary is not divine, and she is not to be worshipped or venerated. We love her and respect her as a sister and a mother of God. But she's not divine, and we don't pray to her. So neither Jesus' brothers or his mother knew that he was God in the flesh, and they, and they didn't believe in him because they thought he was crazy, which means in that moment in time, they were not part of Jesus' spiritual family. Because clearly the qualifications to be part of the family of God is belief in Jesus. Because John says, to all who did receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, there are three important lessons that we can learn from this text. There's obviously more, but there, there are three that I want to share with you today. The first being is that being part of the family of God is nothing has nothing to do with, with your physical descent or relationship. No one, no one, no one is physically born into the family of God. No one. Jesus' own family, right, in this moment, his own mom in this moment, were not part of the family of God. They can't be part of the family of God because they're related to him. Jesus' mothers and brothers now, understand, later on were converted, right, after his resurrection. That's when they became believers, not before. Because you think about it. If your little brother or your older brother came to you and said, I'm the unique son of God, would you believe him? No. What would they have to do? Come back from the dead, probably. But in this moment in time, they were not believers. They were not part of the family of God. And this is important for us to understand because, because there are some people who simply think that they are Christians because their parents claim to be Christians. They're born into a Christian family. They go to church together. They pray at meals together. They might have even said a prayer at VBS some point and even been baptized, and they identify as Christians. But who you are related to doesn't have any bearing on who you are in the, the, the family of God. The only way to enter the family of God is by faith in Christ. I want you to sit, hear that again. The only way to enter the family of God is by faith in Christ. And parents, what this means for us is if you raise your children in the church and if you live a good Christian life in front of them as an example and you encourage them to read their Bible and you can encourage them to pray and you send them to youth group, which you, right, 
which many of you do, and you make sure they go to Sunday school, good on you. You should do those things. Those are important things. But you need to understand those things are not what gets them into the family of God. What gets them in the family of God is for each of them individually to hear the gospel, to repent of and believe the gospel. Each one of them individually has to trust in Christ as their Savior. We cannot assume that just because we raise our children in a Christian home that our children are in the family of God, that is not how it works. We must help them to hear the gospel, understand the gospel, repent and believe the gospel, because it's the only way our children will enter the family of God. End of story. That's why in my home, with my wife, we talk about the gospel all the time. We talk about who God is and how big he is and his sovereignty and his holiness and righteousness, and we talk about who we are in light of who he is. Unrighteous broken sinners, and we talk about the fact that we were born sinners under the wrath of God who have no hope except the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. You ask my kids, we talk about that all the time at home. And we do the same thing, by the way, here at the youth group. I mean, if you ask any of the teens who come to our Bible study on, on Sunday nights, what we normally talk about, they'll tell you we talk about the gospel regardless of what else we talk about. Because we go over it again and again and again. Because my mission is to make sure that every teen who comes to the youth group hears the gospel, understands the gospel, and repents and believes the gospel so they can also become part of the family of God. Because we are in God's family by belief and not by our descent. This is important for everyone to completely understand. And this is also important for, for an issue for, for the Jewish people. Because Jews during this time believed that they were part of God's family simply because they were Jewish. They believed that they were part of God's family simply because they were born into a Jewish family. And this was a common misunderstanding that, that if you're born into the family of Israel, you're part of God's family, and that's just simply not true. The Apostle Paul, who was a devout Jew, a Jew's Jew, who knew the law inside and out, says in Romans chapter 9, excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verse 9, for those, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Let me read that for you one more time. For not all who are descended from Israel, born to that family, belong to Israel. Just because a person is Jewish doesn't make them part of God's family. Just because a person is, is a Jew doesn't make them one of God's people. And I bring that up because there are just some people in the American church, because of their hyper-dispensational views of the end times, think that Jews are just automatically going to be saved because they're Jewish. That they're part of the family of God because of their heritage. In fact, there is a famous pastor in Texas who has written a lot of books on end times who, who teaches that we should not try to share the gospel with the Jews because he believes that, that, that saving them does not involve them turning to Christ and putting their faith in Jesus. Instead, he believes that they will be saved by another plan, a Jewish plan, because they're born into God's family, brothers and sisters. That is a heresy. One of the most famous pastors in America is teaching a, a heresy for the Jewish people. Right? That's just not the truth. We are made part of God's family by faith 
in Christ, and that is it. As John says, it is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so being part of God's family is not about physical descent or relationships. And it's also not about, it's not the result of finding Jesus interesting. You see, one of the things that we need to keep in mind here is not everyone in, 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 that, in that building and around there, in that area, were believers. Jesus didn't say that the whole group of people that were there were his family. He pointed at his followers. Because, because there were people there in the room that didn't believe in him. I mean, they, were, they, were, they, 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 you know, they certainly found him interesting. Right? And, and who doesn't find someone who can heal people and cast out demons interesting? And they might have even found him compelling and even exciting to be around, but they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't acknowledge who he, he was. They were there to see the show. They were there to witness the miracles. This is why, church, we have to be careful and how we approach the world around us because there are people that believe that what we got to do is we got to be hyper-relevant to the world around us and we got to find some way to entertain them and attract them. But if you do that, where they're going to come for the show, but they're not going to come for Jesus. Do you understand that? These people that were there for the show and for the miracles because this stuff is amazing. And some people were there because they wanted Jesus to do something for them. Like heal them. But they didn't believe in him. And even the Pharisees were there and interested in him. They were interested because they wanted to see how, how, what he might do, that he might say something or do something that would, that would cause, him, cause them to condemn him. So there's a lot of people interested in Jesus there. But just being interested in Jesus doesn't make you part of God's family. Just thinking about Jesus doesn't make you part of God's family. Knowing some facts about Jesus doesn't make you part of God's family. And, and neither is being interested in Jesus doing stuff for you. You see, crowds of people follow Jesus everywhere. And they packed in, in every building. And, and, and it was because they were interested in him. But they never, but, but so many of the crowd, if you think about the crowd in this text, it's never cast in a good light because they followed him around because they wanted something out of Jesus. They weren't there for the long haul. They were there to get something. In fact, there's a story of the ten lepers that Jesus heals. Right? He heals ten lepers, and only one of them actually comes back to worship him. The rest of them got something and left. They weren't believers. Only one was. So most of these people are not believers, and, and they were either there to, to get entertained or they were there to get something out of Christ. And, and there are people today who follow Jesus for the same exact reasons. Some people find being you know, in a Christian community helpful and interesting and beneficial. Some people are part of local churches for, for many reasons other than for, for God. In fact, there are churches in the world today who have members who are, who are atheists. Some churches are even led by atheists. And, and believe me, as, as shocking as that sounds, I'm not making it up. A story in the Christian Post dated November 12, 2018 says, a United Church of Canada minister who declared that she doesn't believe in God will be allowed to keep her position as a minister after reaching an agreement with church officials. <laughs> she is an atheist minister. Minister 
in a Christian church. Why even bother, by the way? Not like you, can't, like, like you don't have anything else to do on Sunday morning? Why even go to church, much less lead a church, if you don't believe in God? Because there's something, right, in the church that keeps her interested. There's something about, about this community of faith that keeps her interested. Maybe it's the money that keeps her interested because she's getting paid to do her job. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's her status in the community because, oh, she's a minister. Maybe it's because they just have, like, you know, like crazy good potlucks and she doesn't want to miss out on the food. I, I mean, I, I don't know, but she is certainly interested in Christ, right? But she's not part of, of the family of God. And there are people who come to Christ simply to get something out of the church or get something out of Jesus. They simply want the gifts, but not the giver of the gifts. They want prosperity. They want health. They want health, wealth. They want happiness. They want healing, but they don't want Jesus himself because that involves not just belief, but repentance, and people don't want to repent from their sins. People want Jesus, but they don't want to give up their life for Jesus. They want Jesus, they don't want to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. This is a topic that we talked about and explored pretty deeply Friday night as we, we screened the movie American Gospel. But the reason why you come to Jesus is for Jesus. You come to Jesus because he's your hope. You come to Jesus because he's altogether lovely. You come to Jesus because he's God in the flesh and he died on the cross for you so that you can have a relationship with the Father and be part of his family. Not because Jesus, you find him interesting or what he does exciting or what he can do for you exciting. There are people who come to church right now who are not really interested in Christ. I mean, they, they say that he is, but they're not interested in repentance of faith. They just simply want to be a part of a church family because they want to be a part of that community. Right? Because they want the support of, of the church family. And I want you to understand, we're going to love people and we're going to help people and we're going to do what we can do. But understand, there are going to be people that come to the church, our church and other churches, who are here to get something. They want to be a part of the church family because, because they want something. There's something that they're interested in that they want to get something. But just because you're a part of, of, of a church body, you come to church, it does not make you part of God's family. Being part of the family of God is not a physical descent thing, and neither is it about being interested in Christ and what he can do for you. It's by faith and who he is and repentance that you're part of the, God's family. Now, number three, being part of God's family is also reveal, uh, is revealed by doing the will of God. And I want you to notice what, what Jesus says here. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. Jesus identifies those who, who are part of his family as those who do the will of God. I want you to understand that. I want you to hear that. Jesus identifies those who are part of his family are those who do the will of God. In fact, Luke says it this way. Jesus is saying, as is my mother and my sisters are the, excuse me, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Those are Christ's words, not mine. So the way that you identify yourself as someone who is part of God's family is to do the will of God. 
Or in other words, obey. Those who obey are part of God's family. In fact, Jesus says as much. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey. Obedience to God is the identifying mark of those who are in the family of God. Now we need to understand that obedience is not what gets us into the family. I want you to understand that. It's not what I'm saying here. Because sometimes people take these things and they run with them and, and they, think, they take them out of context. I'm not saying that. Because if there's a verse that I will preach on over and over again that I will remind you of over and over again is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You were saved by grace through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So no one may boast. It's not works. It is not something you do. It is a gift of God. We're in the family of God, not because we obey. We are in the family of God because of repentance and faith. Kent Hughes, in, in his commentary, says it very well. He says, obedience does not originate relationship with God. Faith does that. But obedience is the sign of it. Let me say that again. Obedience does not originate a relationship with God. Faith does that. But obedience is the sign of it. He goes on to say that this new spiritual family relationship in Christ is far superior, far stronger, far more satisfying, far more demanding, and far more dear than any human relationship. Danny Aiken says that in his commentary, he says, in an eternal relationship that is marked by unshakable grace, that this is an eternal relationship marked by unshakable grace, that those who receive that grace are marked by humble obedience. Those who belong to the family of God will be identified by their obedience because as we know, anyone who comes into a true relationship with Christ ultimately will bear fruit in their lives. Their lives will change. You cannot encounter the living God in your life, not change. The sin that you used to love you will begin to hate because God hates it. And the righteousness and the holiness that you used to despise, you'll begin to love because God loves it. And if you're part of God's family, your life will change simply because of the nature of your relationship to God. Because when you repent and believe the gospel, you're <coughs> if you repent and believe the gospel, you are not simply accepted by God as some acquaintance of God. And you're not some stranger that he just invites into your home. You become part of his family. You get to call him Abba, Father. He accepts you as one of his beloved children. Think about how you love your children and your grandchildren. And multiply that times a bazillion. And that will even approach how God feels about you. And that change in your relationship changes Everything, including you. As Timothy Keller says, remember a, child, remember a child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he is already loved and accepted. And this is the same with us. If we have truly received Christ by faith, if we have put our trust in him, then we have already been loved and accepted. And if there's anything that you hear from, from this message today that you remember, let this be it. If you forget everything else, I'm okay with it. If you remember this one thing, if you are in Christ, you are already loved and accepted. That if you belong to Christ, you are already loved and accepted. That no matter what happens to you, no matter what you do, no matter what you get yourself into, 
No matter what kind of persecution you face, no matter how hard life gets, no matter how much bad news you get, no matter how it seems the world is stacked against you, if you are in Christ, you are already loved and accepted by the creator of the universe itself, and that then should motivate us to obey. Bearing fruit that testifies that we are actually part of God's family. Now let's, let, let's look at these, the implications of these truths, these lessons. Because there's some things that we need to come to terms with in light of what Jesus is saying here. And there's a lot, but I'll, but I'll, I'll share with you three again. And the first one is, only true believers are part of God's family. I'm going to say that one more time. Only true believers are part of the family of God. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is part of God's family. Not every person who identifies as a Christian is part of God's family. Not everyone who goes to church is, is a Christian. Not everyone who owns a Bible belongs to God. Not, not everyone who, who, who says, I'm a Christian, is part of the family of God. Only those who truly repent and believe the gospel. And I say that because there are still people who go to church and claim to be Christian who believe things that are not the gospel. Things that are contrary to the gospel. Things that are the opposite of the gospel. There are some people who believe that all religions are true. There are some people even in this church that might even believe that, 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 that Christianity is only one path to God. That there are multiple paths to God. That they all get there. That Christianity is just one of many ways. I'm going to tell you right now if that's true, then, then, the, then the cross and Jesus' crucifixion is the worst travesty in the world and God is cruel because it didn't have to happen. If you believe that there's multiple ways to God, you need to repent of that belief and, and put your faith in the gospel because you're not a part of the family of God. I want you to hear me on that. This might hurt. I'm not trying to hurt you, but I'm trying to tell you the truth. If you believe that there's multiple ways to God besides Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. You are not in God's family. You are not saved. Even if you identify as a Christian, even if you were baptized... If that's what you believe, you're not part of God's family. You need to repent and believe the real gospel. There are some people who believe that both the Christian gospel and the Mormon gospel are compatible. They believe that, if, that, you, could, that you can call yourself a Christian. They believe that you can say, I'm a Christian, but still believe in the Mormon doctrines of God, Christ, and man. If that's what you believe, brothers and sisters, then you need to repent. Because you're not in the family of God. You're not saved. If you believe that the Jesus of the Mormon faith and the Jesus of the Christian faith are the same, you are not saved. You are misled. You're not saved. You're not part of the family of God. Even if you go to a Christian church with an orthodox foundational statement of faith. And I want you to understand, this is not a knock on, on any particular other religion. This is not even like a dig at our Mormon friends in our community. These are people I love deeply. I care about deeply. They're some of the best people I know. They're people, I mean, that I know that, 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 that if something happened to me, they would be there to help. They're just good. And when it comes to actually like comparing people against people, they're just good people. Not that anybody's good, but you understand what I'm saying here. Some of my very good friends are, are Mormons, but, 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 but as much as I love them, they're not part of God's family. If they were to ask me, am I part of your, your God's family? I would say, no. You need to repent and believe the gospel because what you believe is in the gospel. 
Not only true believers. Only true believers are part of God's family. And secondly, if you're a true believer then, if you're a true believer, then we are all one family. Every single one of us. If you're a true believer, then we're not just friends. And we're not just church mates. And we're not just neighbors. We're not just community members. If we're true believers and we're one family, then we are family. And that means that we're supposed to be close. Because the family of God is supposed to be closer than any physical family. It's supposed to be more real than your physical family. Because you have been adopted into a supernatural family of God, which means we're supposed to love each other with a supernatural, grace-filled, God kind of love. Jesus said we're to love each other as I have loved, as I have loved you. Jesus said that we are to love one another, each other here in this room and in our other church family. We're to love each other as Christ loved us. And let me tell you, if, if our love for each other isn't that standard, if we don't meet that standard, it ain't that standard. We fall short. That's what we're called to. Our family is supposed to, to be vitally important to us. Our, our family, our church family, our God's family is supposed to be important to us. All of us. Now, you hear me on this. Even those church family members and those, the, 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 those family members in God who frustrate us and irritate us and get under our skins. We're to love each other. We're to edify each other. We're to take care of each other. The family of God is supposed to be closer than your physical family. Even the ones that upset us. Now what do we do with this? Well, I want you to, I want to give you three applications to consider. There's more applications, but obviously I'm going to give you three. Number one is you need to ask the question, are you part of God's family? And this is the question I'm going to ask over and over again because I can't ever assume that I know. I can look at the fruit in your life and I can believe to a certain level of confidence one way or the other, but ultimately that's going to be a question between you and God. Are you part of God's family? Are you a believer? Or are you just someone who comes to church to get something out of the church? Are you just here around this church family because you just feel loved, but you have no real connection to Christ in, in obedience and repentance? Are you, are you just here because if you come to church, then, 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 then the church people help you with stuff? Are you here just because you just feel connected and you just want to live in a community where, where people are there with you? Are you here so that you can expand your business because you're networking and you know that a church family tends to, 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 to do business with each other? That does happen, by the way. Or are you here, you know, and you're someone who claims to be a Christian, but you're like, I'm, I'm a Christian pastor, but I don't believe that those foundational doctrines you say are foundational. I believe that, that all roads lead to heaven. I believe that, 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 that Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons, they, their doctrines are cool. And, and, you know, I'm just here because this is the most conveniently located church, and I just like you guys because you, you hug me, right? Are you, are you here and you're someone who hasn't really accepted and embraced you know, the truth about Jesus Christ and your sin? Are you here and you don't think that, that hell's a real place? Well, my, my, my call to you is, is if you're not a believer, then what you need to do is you need to repent and put your faith in the gospel. Right? And let me just say what the gospel is. The gospel is this, is that you are, were born, created in the image of God to reflect his nature, but, but because of 
Adam, you were born as a broken reflection of God. You were born in sin. No one had to teach you how to sin. You were born that way. And your life has borne that out. And because you're in sin, then you are at odds with God. You are his enemy, and his wrath abides upon you. And there's nothing you can do to fix that. You can't do enough good deeds to undo what's, what's been done in you. What you need is a change in nature. And the only way that comes is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and traded places with you. And he bore on the cross your sin and your judgment and the wrath of God for you. And in return... By faith, he gives to you the righteousness that you need to stand before God as part of his family. And he, he died on the cross to secure that and rose again to prove that it actually happened and is at the right hand of God interceding for you and sends the Holy Spirit inside of you as evidence of that, changing you more into the image of Christ. That is the gospel that you need to believe. And so I call you to repent and turn from your old ways and your old life and believe that gospel. And if that's who you are, then come talk to me. I'd be happy to, to share how you might do that. Number two, the next question is, is are you connected with, with God's family? Do you, do you live in your life you know, in regular fellowship with other believers? Like, is worship on the Lord's Day something you do normally, or is it just something you do occasionally when you don't have anything else to do? Is it part of something that you purposely engage in regularly because you need the, the family members of Christ? You need to be here connected to each other, right? Are you in a Bible study where you get more time than just once a week where you can be around brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you connected to your church family? And then finally, are you committed to, the, to God's family? And this was a hard one. I'm going to admit this to you. It's, it's hard. Are you committed? Because, I mean, it's really easy to spend your whole life going to church every Sunday and tithing and then, and then even coming to a Bible study and even, you know, participating on some level, right, and, and doing all the things that good Christians are supposed to do and still not be actually committed to one another. Because it's really easy to just be distant. Are you committed to one another? Like, are you praying for each other? Are, are you praying for one another? Are you... Are you, are you, are you, do you know each other well enough to know what's going on in your lives to be able to say, you know, I'm going to pray for that thing that's happening in your life. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to pray that God heals you. I'm going to pray that God helps you with that, that situation. I'm going to pray that God helps you get that job. I'm going to pray that God, right? And we need to love each other, right? Are, are you loving your church family? And I don't mean like, oh, you're just so wonderful and amazing. I love you, which is nice, but that's not what we're talking about. We're here. We're talking about loving in practical ways. Are you loving each other like, hey man, I, I know that you're battling something really, really tough. Is there anything I can do to help you? Hey, can I come over and help, you know, help pull those weeds? Can I, can I come over and, and just sit with you and visit with you and, you know, like listen to what you're doing? I mean, can, can, I, can I help you, with, you know, with this or, or that? Can I help you move? By the way, there's only two kinds of Christians. Um, you have Christians who will actually help you move and people and Christians who will say they'll help you move but then find something else to do. We're to, we're to love each other and we're to help each other. We're to be there for each other. We're to bear each other's burdens and then we're to care for each other. And even and I'm and I'm saying and even those that are hard to love and hard to care for and those who get under our skin and those who's just the sound of their voice, you know, makes our puts our, our teeth on edge. Every one of you, it seems like, and even me, we sometimes struggle 
with our brothers and sisters in Christ because there's something happens or somebody says something or does something and then there's just this kind of division that pops up. Are we willing to do that for them too? And if not, then are you praying, Lord, change my heart? Because that's what you need to pray for is change my heart and help me to exhibit the love of your family, the one that you died for. Your family of God that you purchased and died for, that you made me a part of, not by anything that I've done, but by your grace. Am I willing to be that? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word and, and how it beats us up sometimes. And I pray, Father God, that we would live this out, we would walk in this, Lord, and that we would understand that, Lord, that is it. That, that's the sum total. The identifying marks of being a Christian is not just one thing, it's two things. It is marked by, one, our obedience to you, that our visible obedience is a sign that we belong to your family, and two, as your word says, that we love one another as, as, as you have loved us. Those are the indications of, of if we're a Christian or not is if we do those things. And Father, that you would inspire us to be able to live in both of those things. Live in the obedience to follow you and go where you want us to go, but also then to live in the obedience of loving one another as church family, Father God, that we would grow together as a robust church family, knit together in our hearts, Lord God, lifting each other up, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, holding each other accountable, Lord, but also uh, you know, praying for each other and caring for each other and weeping with each other, Lord, that we do all those one another things that you're calling us to do, Lord God. And the Father, that we would then call others around us that, that think they're part of God's family, that we'd call them to repentance and faith, that we'd confront them with the truth about the gospel, Lord, that we would all make sure, every one of us would take turns making sure that each one is of the faith, Father, challenging each other to know and understand and believe the gospel and repent. And Father, I pray that you'd raise up a church family that is cohesive and unified and one, Lord God, that we would love each other with a reckless abandon, Father God, and that we would hold on to you, Lord, the center of our faith, and we would go out into the world and share the hope of Jesus Christ with our community, Father, bringing more people into your family. Thank you for that. In Christ's beautiful name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.